0: This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershan-Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. We are doubly excited today because we have two guests, Phil Kincaid and Kelly Birch, the editor-reporter team behind a reporting series called The 306 Project, which is tracking an effort to reform education in New Hampshire. This is quite the powerhouse team. Kelly is an accomplished freelancer whose work has been featured in many national publications. Phil has been an editor for New Hampshire news outlets for several decades and was executive director of the New Hampshire Press Association for five years. We are happy and humbled to have your time today, both of you.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Thanks for having us. Before we get into the 306 project, I'd like to know from Kelly how you created a freelance career for yourself and why was that the right choice for you? and if you'd recommend it to other aspiring writers.
2: I'm a little bit of a freelance evangelist, so I would definitely recommend it to others. For me, it's really been the only way. I grew up in a household where my parents were self-employed. They were business owners in the contracting field. So I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I wanted their flexibility and, for better or worse, all that responsibility that comes with being self-employed. So about 10 years ago, after my first daughter was born, I decided to try working in a newsroom through my pregnancy. And it was fine. I got a lot of experience. But I ultimately decided I wanted to have more of more control over my career. So I started freelancing and I haven't looked back since. And for me, it's been personally accommodating of my life. I have two kids and I'm able to deal with them. It's been financially very secure for me. I'm the breadwinner in our family. And a lot of people have the conception that freelancing can't be a lucrative or stable career path. And that's certainly not the case. And professionally, it's given me the opportunity to work on such a wide variety of projects that it's really fulfilling.
0: Thank you. And Phil, your LinkedIn page says you've been an editor since the late 70s. Why were you drawn to editing? What, in your view, makes a good editor, and how has that role changed over time?
1: Well, that's a pretty heavy question. I think the reason why I was drawn to editing is because as much as I loved reporting, it was a nonstop job. I used to say when I was a reporter, I had a little knot in the back of my head that never went away because I was always thinking, who do I need to call next? What's happening with this story? I should talk to this person. And when I went to the desk, what happened was is now, well, now I had a chance to, you know, be part of all of these stories and guide resources and editors and to be able to sort of direct what kind of coverage was being done, but that not in the back of my head that was always there kind of went away. And I didn't have to worry about, well, what am I going to write tomorrow? What am I going to write this afternoon? And I always liked to be in a position of helping to shape ideas and direction for a newspaper. So I think that's I think that's why I found it to be a, a real draw and it's amazingly different today than it, than it was back then. You know back then we all worked in newsrooms. We all showed up, we were editors and reporters and and today, like as I am now a project editor, everything is done online. Everything's done through, you know, Gmail, it's done through online editing and it's it's just a totally different experience because it's much harder to make connections to reporters and for reporters to kind of really understand what you're what you're looking for. Or you might say something that could be taken the wrong way because it's in an email. And sometimes I try to make jokes and sometimes they don't go over very well. So it's a totally different experience. And one, to to be honest with you, I've struggled with how to do it online or through Zoom calls. So as, as more and more reporters are like Kelly, who are now doing freelance work, I think it, it really fundamentally changes their relationship between an editor and a reporter.
3: It's very interesting. Let's turn now to the 306 project. First things first, what's the significance of the name?
1: Well, that's actually part of the state statute. Okay. So there's this process that the state goes through every 10 years where they're going to update and rewrite the minimum standards for public approval. And that's called education statute 306. And so that's the official title that it's getting given. And so it's part of the Joint Legislative Committee on Administrative Rules, which was established in the early 80s. And it's basically a legislative check on the executive branch. So for example, the Board of Education is now responsible, or the Department of Education is now responsible every 10 years for rewriting those minimum standards. But they just can't write them on their own. They have to write them and then submit them to this joint legislative committee, which will then make the final approval. And so that's where we are at right now. We are in the process of where those minimum standards are now being finalized so that they can be submitted to the legislative committee.
3: Why did this issue come to your attention? And why did you make the determination that it was worthy of a series?
2: So Phil and the editor-in-chief at the collaborative, Melanie Zbenda, first brought this To me. And I have two kids who are in public school in New Hampshire. I think I'm a fairly well informed parent, but I had no idea that this was happening. And I immediately saw there's been a lot of tension and concern within the educational community from teachers and administrators, the unions, about this process. So immediately, that had appeal because it seemed like there was a story there. There was tension and disagreement, and I wanted to figure out what that was about and how it was going to impact students in New Hampshire. As we got into it more, we realized there are really two issues here. There's the 306 minimum standards, which, like Phil just explained, is a document that governs public school approval in the state. Separate to that, there's the issue of competency-based education, which is sometimes also called competency-based learning. And that is an approach to education that looks fairly novel than as it would have from when we were in school. So under a competency-based model, students are able to learn at their own pace. If you fail a test, you may be able to take that again to relearn the material and give it another shot. So the proponents would say that really mimics the real world where you're being assessed not on your time in the classroom or completing assignments, but on really demonstrating that you know the material. So competency-based learning separate to the 306s has fairly widespread support, but there's a lot of inequities and there's not a ton of cohesion in how that is applied, both in New Hampshire and nationwide. So we decided to look at these two issues in light of each other, but also since they are separate, to move into a series that looks at both of them.
3: You might think that improving basic education standards would be easy to build a consensus around, but your reporting has revealed just how fraught this process can be. For those who haven't seen your reporting yet, could you give us an idea of what conflicts arose?
2: Where to begin? There are quite a few here. And really, this gets into a lot of educational jargon. And I think that's the reason it's hard for people to understand. So at the really high level, the current proposals for the 306s are moving New Hampshire even further along the track of competency based education. So, when I went into the reporting, I thought that was going to be the tension whether that switch to CBE, competency based education, was a positive. And I was immediately surprised to see that really everyone on all sides of the issue agreed that CBE is the future of education. So, that Main issue I thought we were looking at was off the table because there was consensus there, which was a pleasant surprise. But then I realized really the devil's in the details. So, a few of the most contentious points, again, about the 306s, not necessarily the concept of competency based education. There's changes to the language in the document that a lot of people have raised alarms about. For example, They have replaced the term certified educator with simply educator. And they've removed the word local from references to local school boards. And to understand why those seemingly small changes are such a big deal, you need to have a picture of the educational ecosystem in New Hampshire right now, where there's a ton of tension. I really don't think it can be overstated. Between educators and the state and the State Department of Education under Commissioner Edelbutt. And there's really a mistrust there, which we did a whole story on. So when educators see these small, seemingly small changes to language, they're concerned about the intent behind that and how it could be used to possibly undermine public education. So language is a major issue. There's also changes that lean more heavily into competency-based education. For example, the term grade level is replaced with learning level. And that reflects the belief in CBE that a student should be able to learn where they are. If my kindergartner is reading at a second grade level, he should be able to go to the second grade class and get that enrichment while his peers In kindergarten who are learning the essentials of phonics and sight words, continue to get that education in their classroom. But again, there's concern about how that would be implemented, because that takes a lot of coordination from schools. If a kindergartner is going to be moving up for reading, the entire school needs to be studying reading at the same time. Same for math. So there's a lot of logistics that educators are concerned they won't have support for if these changes are made into requirements. And finally, a third issue here is the topic of extended learning opportunities or ELOs. These are opportunities for kids, particularly in high school, to learn outside the classroom. And intuitively, this makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. It's the idea behind internships and vocational learning and the draft of the 306s currently takes ELOs even further. Currently, they're allowed in New Hampshire high schools, but high schools can put limitations on how many extended learning opportunities a student can do, and they're not widely available at younger learning levels. Under the current 306 proposals, those would be available to students in middle and high school and districts would not be able to limit the number of ELOs that a student can get credit for.
1: There's another issue here that's that's breeding this mistrust and that is the idea that much of this work that has been done with the revamping of the standards has been done in private, out of public view. The board of education entered into a contract with the National Center for Competency Based Learning which was formed by Fred Bramante, a very familiar name uh, in New Hampshire politics. He was the former chairman of the State Board of Education. He has run for governor a couple of times. He touts himself as the father of competency-based learning. And they signed a contract with this group in November of 2022, and they issued a draft proposal of changes in April, I believe, March or April of 2023, But they never held any public session about what they were doing until May 17th was the first listening session. And so this bred an incredible amount of distrust from educators who were very concerned about what was going on because they had no idea. And so when you talk about some of the distrust, as Kelly pointed out, a lot of it is predicated on this notion that the education community was not made part of this discussion.
2: I did just want to clarify one thing Phil just mentioned. The contract was actually signed way back in 2020, and the first public sessions didn't happen until 2023. So for two years before that, this revision was happening without educators in the state aware that it was happening. So that was, felt like a betrayal to a lot of the educators who I spoke to especially because this contract was awarded to the National Center for Competency-Based Learning, but it never went out for bid. So there was a distrust about why this contract went where it did and why it was kept out of public sight, as well as the fact that the task force revising these has no teachers on it. It has former administrators, and I believe one or two current administrators, but no current teachers.
3: I was wondering if part of that distrust might be out of partisanship, or at least fear of partisanship.
2: That's a great question, and one I've been trying to delve into in the reporting. Because if there's Ever a bipartisan issue, I think you could say it's education. We all want our kids to have a great education. But in the current political climate nationally, there's been lots of discussions about undermining public education and a mistrust between political appointees and the role they're playing in our public education system. And that absolutely is coloring. The emotions here in New Hampshire. And the chairman of the Department of Education is a political appointee. So there's inherently a political and partisan sort of tone to these conversations.
0: So, what do you think the presence of these conflicts says about the state of our larger society? And is any of this wrapped up in the lingering after effects of COVID learning?
2: COVID learning plays a huge role here. School districts already feel overtaxed. They feel that they're playing catch up from COVID still and trying to get students back to the level they should be at if they hadn't missed those years of typical classroom education. And also the COVID retirement. Of teachers and masks can't be overlooked because school districts and educators who I've spoken to, they really feel they don't have the resources right now to implement widespread change like this. One person at a public listening session referred to these changes as a sort of unfunded mandate. And There's a strong feeling from educators that without funding and support from the Department of Education, they're not going to be able to implement these changes in the right way. And a lot of people I spoke to pointed out that competency-based learning, when done well, is very effective. But that title, because we're not familiar as a society with that approach to education, can be used to... Hide or brush aside practices that aren't very effective for our students. So there's a real consensus that if we're going to make this change and continue pushing that way, there needs to be support from the Department of Education, which educators don't feel they have.
1: Yes, I think one of the concerns of educators in the state with this particular Department of Education is that they're seeing in some of these proposals an effort to shift. Funding, shift resources out of the current school system into private hands. And so you're, and I think what their concern is that there, this is an effort to kind of take back the education system and turn it into a a private entity more than it is today. And so there's a lot of concern that those resources that are already in short supply will be even less.
3: Well, speaking of resources in short supply, I'm wondering if, Kelly, you could tell me how much work goes into producing a series like this. And then I'd like Phil to answer why do you think the Granite State News Collaborative might be the best outlet positioned to tackle it?
2: This is the first investigative series that I've done. And it is so much work. I was laughing in the fall because I have a few of these sources in my frequent text messages my husband knows the characters and the story at this point and I'd be going to bed thinking about how these sources relate to each other and how the different topics here intertwine so it really you become immersed in it and it's so complex in this education system that it's sort of the more you dig, the more it comes out. So having the backing of the collaborative and their expertise to sort of guide me through this process has been really instrumental. Especially, we touched on partisanship before. We've been really lucky with this series in that sort of all sides, for lack of a better term, are talking to us. We have people everywhere. And there's been some balance in making sure that We are representing all those sources fairly and also sort of keeping them talking to us and fostering those relationships with the source. So, Phil has hopped on many a phone call with me about just sort of managing those source relationships in a series that has already been ongoing for about four months and we're still reporting on.
1: In terms of of resources and and why the collaborative may be better positioned than more traditional news outlets to handle a story like this is that all you need to do is take a look at newsroom staffing throughout the state. You know, when I joined the National Telegraph, we had a staff of over 40 newsroom personnel. When I retired, we had 18. We used to be able to do a special project a month because we had enough resources that we could spell a reporter and say, hey, take a week, work on this story. That's not available today. There just aren't reporters. They're just not there. And what has happened if you're managing a newspaper, you're most concerned about how do I get the paper out today? You're concerned because if somebody calls in sick, how are you going to fill that spot? And so all of these really in-depth kind of analysis pieces that newspapers used to do, they can't do anymore. The Collaborative is uniquely placed because it has this cadre of freelance reporters like Kelly who we can give them the time uh, and the resources to be able to follow these things. And so I think it's has been a shift. Um, and so there's some other projects that I'm working on with the collaborative as well, which is really to take a deeper dive into a lot of these issues that we only get superficial coverage in. And so that's been the real, I think, the real strength of the collaborative. And it's, you know, it's something that is going, I think is going to continue to evolve.
2: Another place where the collaborative really shines here is being able to take the statewide view. CBE has been implemented in different districts through the state. And as you might guess, districts that have more resources and greater local funding have had more success with this than districts that are underfunded. So being able to look at how these changes will impact not just one specific district that may or may not have resources available has really given a broader picture of how this is going to impact all New Hampshire students. And that plays right into ongoing conversations about what an adequate education is in the state and the government's obligation to fund that for all our students.
3: One thing that I've found when I've reported series is that once you begin publishing, some of the sources that might have been a bit reluctant initially will be more forthcoming once they start to see what your reporting is all about. So I'm wondering if you've also experienced that and more broadly what the reactions have been to your reporting since you started publishing.
2: I was hoping for exactly that, Adam, because I know sometimes sources can come out of the woodwork or be willing to chat when some brave souls go first. That hasn't particularly been the case on this project. One thing that has come out of running the initial series is that sources saw that I was sticking to what they've said and representing their views in a fair and balanced way. So although I haven't had a ton of new sources come out, I have had I would say, sort of an enriched relationship with the sources who I've already talked to. And they've been able to point me to other educators and leaders who are doing work in here in this space. That distrust with the Department of Education, unfortunately, still clouds this issue because there's a lot of fear in the state about getting on the wrong side of the Department of Education. And I've heard that time and again, and it's holding people back from talking about this issue.
1: And I, I'd like to address there's even on a broader scale on some of the other projects that I've worked with is a reluctance on people to come forward and talk at all, because we live in such a politically charged environment today. People are afraid that if they speak out and they say something, then they're going to be targeted on social media. There's going to be some political group that's going to come after them. And so people today are more cautious than ever before about speaking out and saying anything because they are afraid of the potential ramifications for them. And you can see it across all kinds of subject areas. And I, I think that just part of environment that we all live in today has had a chilling effect on people's willingness, many people's willingness, to speak out because they fear that there might be retribution.
2: That's certainly been the case with this. And people are concerned that by speaking with us, they'll undermine the work that they're doing in terms of having helping kids access the best education. For example, Christine Downing is an educator who I've spoken to many times, and she is not formally involved with the task force that's revising the 306s, but she's taken it upon herself to host a number of meetings, compile a lot of information from educators in the state, providing their feedback and concerns about the changes, and she's done that all on her own so her number her name came up in early reporting and i started reaching out to her and if she told me once she told me 10 times that she wasn't interested in the media or the news coverage or the partisanship she really wanted to focus on getting this document the best possible state for students and there was a concern that speaking out could be perceived as sort of holding court in the press rather than doing the work that has to be done.
1: And I can give you one specific example. I was working on another story involving college-based issues, uh, university-based issues. And the reporter contacted someone who was an expert in the field. And the expert said, well, I can't speak to you on the record. I have been ordered by my publisher because she was a book. She wrote a book and the book was coming out. The publisher told her she was not allowed to make any public comments about the issue because they were afraid if something was said and it got taken out of context, it could hurt the book sales. So those are the kinds of things that we're dealing with today that's pervasive throughout society.
3: How do you approach that problem then? Have you found a way to to work around those concerns or to uh, convince people to participate despite them?
2: I've learned the importance of talking to sources informally and off the record. I currently am in the process of having multiple discussions with a school district in the state about highlighting their efforts and just sort of building trust and rapport with them before we jump into the more difficult questions. And to Phil's point earlier, that is something that reporters in the past in a newsroom may have had the time to do to really cultivate those source relationships. And in the freelance world today, where typically we're paid per story and we're moving on with this quick news cycle, we don't have as much time. But for this series, that's really been instrumental for me.
1: Usually what I I tell reporters is if you could... Will the source speak to you on the condition of background? That's sort of like off the record. Can you just talk to me about this issue? Tell me about this issue? Educate me about this issue. So then you can take that information and then go back to people who are officials, who you can then confront them with that information and kind of force them to say something. It's all about, you know, a good reporter is you've got to know the subject. And that means talk. if people won't talk to you on the record, then you've got to find a way for them to at least say, look it, educate me, teach me so I can write an accurate story. And then find someone who, hopefully, you can use that information to find someone who will speak to you.
0: So we've talked a little bit about the changing landscape of journalism, maybe in New Hampshire, maybe more broadly. Phil, let's start with you What advice would you have for someone interested in starting their career in journalism?
1: I would say don't be discouraged by the current environment. There are tremendous opportunities out there in many areas, not traditional as much as they used to be, but you can carve out a career like Kelly has as an independent reporter. There are opportunities like this, like podcasts never existed before. There are many opportunities for you to explore journalism to be a reporter, but there are much the landscape is much different today than it was let's say 30 years ago. You're not going to likely end up working for a small daily newspaper. you know you're going to have to find areas that you can be a reporter that are different from that. I mean one thing to notice is that we've had several new news entities come online in New Hampshire over the last few years and I say online on purpose because they've all been digital. All the new news outlets are digital outlets. There are no new newspapers. The economics of newspapers uh, are no longer possible. You cannot produce revenue generating, positive revenue generating newspaper today. The economics are just not there. So that's that's where the future is. The future is in digital. There are tremendous opportunities out there, whether it's streaming, video, audio, whatever. There are tremendous, There are opportunities, but they're just a lot different than what I grew up with.
0: Thank you. I do just want to give a, a little shout out to daily newspapers. They do still exist, and there are still uh, several opportunities if you know where to look. But Kelly, same question to you. What advice would you have for someone who's looking to start get started in journalism?
2: I think focusing on the core of the craft is really the best approach having a nose for what makes a good story. Sometimes that is related to breaking news like it is in this case, but sometimes that's a character who your readers or your audience will just buy into and want to know more about. So finding that hook or the news angle as we talk about it, and then just learning how to craft that compelling narrative the details of where your stories appear and what form content takes are going to change but i may be hopelessly optimistic i don't think we're going anywhere we have such a hunger for these human stories that i don't think it's going away it wasn't the death of not the death but it wasn't the uh, low decline of some print dailies that did us in i don't think AI is going to do us in. I think that those essential skills are going to be marketable in some way.
0: To read the full reporting series on the 306 project, check the link in our show notes. And Kelly, since we know this series is ongoing, where can people go to keep up with the latest reporting and to follow the series into the future?
2: I'm really excited about the stories we're doing this spring, which are looking at what competency-based education looks like in its best state and sort of getting past the politics of the initial series. So I would love to have people keep up with us. The Granite State News Collaborative is on social media at Granite State News. So we're easy to find there. And folks can also follow me on social media at Writing Birch. That's B-U-R-C-H, like my last name.
0: Great. Kelly and Phil, thank you so much for your time today. Our pleasure. Thank you both. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.